away they go. Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer before we look at God's word. Lord, what great news that we just sang, that our shackles, the sin that had bound us is thrown into the sea. It's gone. You've set us free. Thank you for this. Thank you for setting us free. And we pray, Lord, that we would use our freedom to your glory, that our, we are free to serve you now. And uh, we, I just pray that you would do that. Lord, um, I pray for our uh, friend church, uh, Revive AV, as they're beginning in the, here in the Antelope Valley. Lord, would you uh, lead them in their building search? Um, they need a, a better place to worship, a more permanent place. And I pray that uh, you would be faithful to take them where you want them to go. You've already shown them a place and taken it away. Lord, lead them to the right place, and we trust that you'll do that. Father, I pray that, um, that as they reach out to people around them, that uh, their efforts would be making disciples, that they would be leading people not just to church, but leading people to Jesus Christ and to follow him. And Lord, I pray for uh, Revive as they're going to come on April 2nd and lead our worship. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would make that a special time of fellowship where two churches join together to do what we were called to do, and that's worship Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you bless them? I pray for Pastor Jeff this afternoon as he gets ready to preach your word. Lord, would your Holy Spirit be at work in him to help him see and understand Jesus from the text and to show Jesus to his congregation? Um, Lord, I, I just pray that he would really connect with that and that you would speak mightily through him. And Lord, I ask the same things for us as we reach out, as we do Alpha, as we um, host a, um, uh, an Easter message for people who don't come to church often. Lord, I pray that our efforts at reaching out to other people would not make church attenders, but Lord, would do what you've called us to do, which is make disciples, make learners who follow Christ. Uh, so do those same things for us, we pray. And now as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you would um, illuminate that for us. Help us to understand what you're saying in this and that we would understand how to be better disciples of yours. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So um, Luke, my, my presupposition for the gospel of Luke is it's about being a better disciple. The way that it begins is he writes to a man named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, I want you to be sure of what you've been taught. And that's what disciples do, is type, disciples learn. They have somebody who teaches them, and they follow that. So that's the, the, the idea behind Luke as far as I can tell. Um, and so when we look at these scriptures, we have to ask, how does this make us a better disciple? How does it help us to follow Jesus better? And um, you heard Ron read the story. It's a short little story, pretty clear. And the question there is, what do we do with it? <laughs> or the way I like to say it sometimes, just to get people's attention is, okay, that's what it says, so what? And so we need to work on the so what question. So the way I'm going to approach it this morning is we'll just kind of go through the text and see the story for what it is, and then we'll begin to unpack it. Um, so here's how it begins. It starts... On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Um, this little kind of throwaway sentence is really a big clue for us. Luke is not writing necessarily in chronological order. He's not telling the story exactly step by step how it happened. And the way we know that is because back in chapter 10, he entered the home of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are in Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. So either that story's out of order or this one's out of order. But he calls our attention to it. He's not, he's not shying away. He's not trying to you know, pull one over our, our eyes or something. He says Jesus is going to Jerusalem. So it's in this cycle of Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. He's going to do something in Jerusalem. 
But this, this story obviously doesn't belong here because he's already been down to Bethany. And also, the border between Galilee and Samaria is way up in the north, and it's not heading south. It's going east-west. So Jesus is up in this area, and, and it's, it's kind of out of chronological order. What I think Luke is doing is he's saying, look, I brought this story to this place because it has a purpose. I want to teach us something. And it fits with the cycles of the stories that I've been telling. So it's kind of a hat tip to us to say, now pay attention here. Uh, this isn't necessarily chronological. This is something that's important for us. So the story then is Jesus is about to enter a village. Luke is horrible with village names. He never tells us where these people are going. He just says a village over and over again. You know why I think he does that? Is I think he's writing to Gentiles who would have absolutely no clue where most of these places were. And so it's just not important that, that it's, the, he, it's a village somewhere up in the north between Galilee and Samaria. That's all we really need to know. That's the important part. So don't, don't fo focus too much on where he went, but he's going into a village and he's met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice. Now, leprosy, when we think of the term leprosy, we think of that horrible disease where digits fall off. They lose fingers and toes. and It's just a really a horrible, horrible disease and we call that leprosy. In the first century, leprosy was any number of skin diseases. It could be something as mild as psoriasis or something as horrible as what we would call uh, leprosy today. But the point was, these are lepers. They have a skin disease that's broken out on their skin. And so according to Jewish law, they were unclean. They were ceremonially unclean. They had to separate themselves from the people because they weren't allowed to contaminate other people with uncleanliness. And so th these folks are, are doing what they're supposed to do. They're standing at a distance. They haven't entered into the village. They stand at a distance and they're watching Jesus walk past. And they know him. They've heard about him. And so they yell out to him because they won't approach him. They yell out and they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Are they asking to be healed? Well, yeah, they are. That's what they mean by have mercy on us. Is, is they're saying it, it is a problem that we have and we're looking for mercy. We're looking for you to extend to us your mercy so that we might be clean. So we might be healed and, and be clean. And so Jesus turns to them, and he must have yelled from a distance because they haven't come closer. He says, go and show yourself to the priests. Um, that is not a command to pick up and go to Jerusalem. There were priests who probably lived in the area. And what he's saying is, go show yourself to the local priest. So they turn around, and they're heading towards their local priest. And actually, the, the ritual for being cleansed didn't happen in the temple. So they didn't need to go to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the way that, that uh, um, Leviticus explains it, it had to happen in an open field with living water or water that was moving. So that would not be in the temple. So they, this is a cleaning ritual they could do in their own area. So he tells them, you go and show yourself to the priests. And then the, the startling thing that Luke says is, as they went, they were cleansed. He didn't clean them and say, now go show yourself. He said, go show yourselves. They turn around and walk. And, and I can picture them as they're walking along, they're talking about, well, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know what's going on. Bob, you're clean. <laughs> Jim, what happened? Your, your skin is all clean. And, and they would just be surprised on the way. So it was in their going that they find out that now they're clean. It's okay. So as they're, they go, they're, they're cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, when he realized, I'm like them too, I'm healed, I'm cleaned, instead of pressing on and going to the priest, he turns back. He runs back to Jesus. 
And he comes, as he's coming along, it says that he was praising God with a loud voice. So people knew he was coming. And you knew what he was excited about. He is yelling praises to God with this loud voice. And he goes back to the city. And he approaches Jesus and he says, he fell down at his feet and gave him thanks. So he comes praising God and then he falls down at at Jesus' feet and thanks him. Now, the point of any of these stories is whatever Jesus says. So as soon as Jesus starts talking, you know this is the important part. (laughs) Luke was setting that up. So Jesus says, asks a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, um, we're not ten cleansed? And the way way it's phrased is, yes. That's the anticipated answer. Yes, ten were cleansed. He says, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And again, it's phrased to say, yes, only the foreigner returned. And so Jesus looks to the foreigner, the Samaritan, and says to him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The Samaritans were the center section of Israel. So there was Galilee in the north and then Jerusalem and the the other tribes in the south. And in the center was a section called Samaria. And in the time of the kings, it was a corrupt area. The northern tribes never worshipped God right. They worshipped fake gods. They, they were just abysmal the whole time. God sent some, um, uh, Assyria in to carry them away into exile. And when Assyria carried them away, they needed to leave people in the land because you don't empty a land to empty it. You empty a land so that you get the produce out of it. So they left some Jews there to, to take care of the land. They brought people in from other nations and moved them in. And so now Samaria turns into, it had a bad history to begin with, and now it's a mixed race of people. And they brought their own gods. And so now it's some Judaism and some other foreign religions, and it's just a bad area. So by the time we get to New Testament times, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. People would walk all the way around the edges of the nation to come south. They wouldn't want to travel through it. So when Jesus mentions a Samaritan, think of the worst possible person you could imagine. And that's the person that he's talking to. So he looks to the Samaritan and he tells them, your faith has made you clean. Um, That's actually an interesting translation. Most modern translations translate that as, your faith has made you well or made you clean. The word that's there is sozo, which is saved. Your faith has saved you. Um, So why do modern translations go with healed or well or clean? Um, I think what Luke is doing is he's using a double meaning here. Their, their faith has made them clean. They have, they have trusted in the Lord, and that's why they're cleansed. But he looks to the Samaritan, and he says, no, your faith has made you he- saved. So the other nine were cleansed, weren't they? They were walking along, and they were healed as well. But this one, he singles out and says, you're saved. So I think Luke has kind of drawn out a double meaning in this. So that's kind of the situation. So what? I told you I was going to ask that question. So what? So how is, what are the principles of discipleship in this? Well, there's a handful of them. And what I'd like to do is, is I don't want to go, I don't want to get too imaginative with the text. With the nine, we just don't know that much about them, do we? All we know is what they did. It's only the Samaritan that we kind of get a glimpse into what he's thinking and what he's feeling because we hear a little bit more about him. So I don't, I don't want to read a whole bunch in there, but... Um, let's just take a, let's pause and take a look at what they did. So all of them are told, go, at, go and show yourself to the priest. 
Jesus gave them a command. They, first of all, they call out to him. They're asking him, have mercy on us. They're calling on Jesus. So they know that he can do something for them. So that they call on him. He tells them, go show yourself to the priests. They're not even cleansed yet. They still have the sores on their skin. And they turn around and they leave. They, they obey what Jesus said. He said, go, they went. So there, there's a degree of faith going on here. But when they get to the certain point on their travel where they look down and, hey, I'm cleansed, nine of them continued on. And one went back. So what's going on there is um, it could be a couple of things. It could be a couple of different reasons. Uh, they're focused on what their ritual was. They have to go complete this ritual. And so it could be that they just want their lives back. As, as lepers, they're cast out of the society. They are cut off from the people. And so they have to stand at a distance from everybody. If they get near people, they have, they're, by the law, they're supposed to yell unclean as a warning. And so Jesus has cleansed them. Now they have to complete the ritual. They have to go to the priest. It's actually a really cool ritual. It's one of my favorite rituals from, uh, uh, from Leviticus, is they take two doves, and they take some scarlet yarn, and they take a piece of cedar wood, and an earthen vessel, and some hyssop. Hyssop is a, a branch of a, a, like a bush. And they go into the field, and the priest examines the person and says, Yep, it's all healed. So they kill one of the birds, and they pour the blood into the earthen vessel, and then they take the hyssop, or the, uh, the yarn and the cedar and the living bird, and they roll it in the blood, and then they take the living bird and they let it loose into the field, and it flies away. And that has to be done over what they call living water. And that, what that means is moving water, a stream or something like that where the water is moving. And what a fascinating, you know, you could really go in depth on what these things mean and what the pictures are. Uh, but I don't think it's really helpful. I think it's just a neat presentation of here's how you're cleaned is, is blood cleanses you and this bird flies away. It's free. You're free from whatever it was that was contaminating you. You have been made free. It's just a, a, a beautiful picture. So after that, what they would do is they would then shave their, all their hair and they would stay outside the city for 10 days. And then they would come back and the priest would go, yep, you're still clean, welcome home. And so they could go home. So the nine is, are, are probably thinking, as they're walking along, they're talking about Jesus. Can you believe that, that he did that? He was able to do that? He healed us. He must be a prophet. God has sent a prophet among us. Isn't that wonderful? And they go to the priest and they complete their, their ritual so that they can go home. That's not a bad thing, is it? I mean, that was what the law said they were supposed to do. There's nothing really horrible about that. But they were looking towards, I want to get my life back. God's been gracious to me, and I'm getting my life back. I can go home now. I can go back and, and, and move into my house. So that's, that might be one approach that they had. Another approach might have been, God did this for me, and he, he wants these birds, and so I have to go make this offering. Because God has done this wonderful thing for me, I have to go do this thing back for him. I have to offer back to him what he's, he's asked for. And um, have, you, have you ever heard or seen a bumper sticker that says, Jesus died for you, what have you done for him? That can be horrible news. That, that can be just a terrible approach. Because if you adopt that idea of God cleansed me, therefore I have to go give him these birds, it can turn into a servile attitude 
where you're constantly enslaved to God, trying to pay him back. Jesus died for you. What have you done for him? And it can, it can debilitate service because it turns into, I owe him. And the way that that can play out in your mind is you think, well, I didn't do enough today. Did I do enough? I sat and watched TV. I could have gone next door. Why didn't I do that? I, you know, Jesus died for me, and what, I'm not doing enough for him. And it can be debilitating because it turns you inward and makes you think, what else can I be doing? Because you've got this idea that you owe him, and he, he's got your number, and you'll never make it up. Or worse, you can begin to kind of salve your conscience and saying, well, yeah, you know, he did that for me. That was great. But I think I've made it up to him now. I, I've served him for 30 years. I, I think I'm done. I think we're, we're even. That's horrible. What you're doing is you're saying that Jesus was able to be repaid for dying for your sins. The, eternal, the eternally begotten, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who had existed forever, took on human form so that he could come and die a death of ignominy a horrifying, punishing death in your place, and you think you've paid him back. Or you think you can pay him back. And so if that's their attitude, this kind of servile, I've got to just keep Owen and Owen and Owen, or, you know, I'm going to do this and we're even. You know, it's not that big of a deal. That's a terrible place to follow God from. It really is a bad thing to think in those terms. In, um, in the book Future Grace by John Piper, he talks about this attitude of, of gratitude. Um, when he says gratitude, he means this idea of a debtor's ethic. I've got to pay him back. Piper says gratitude, when it's done right, is a beautiful thing. There is no Christianity without it. But when it comes to spelling out the spiritual dynamics of how practical Christian obedience happens, the Bible does not say that it comes from the backward grace of gratitude to pay God back, but it comes from the forward gaze of faith. So if you want to be enabled for the Christian life, it, it, it can sneak into our mindset that we're paying God back somehow. I'm going to do my Bible study this morning because, well, you know, Jesus died for me. I, I owe him, I, I guess. And so you, you sit and read the Bible and you, you don't really like it. <laughs> I'm doing it because I have to, rather than an attitude of faith looking forward saying, what can I hear? What can I see? What am I going to learn today? Um, so the Samaritan, on the other hand, he heads back to Jesus. The story ends, we don't know. He may well have, after he finished praising God and thanking Jesus, he may have then stood up, turned around, and made a beeline right to the priests. It's entirely possible. So he's not not doing the, the duty but he's got this proper response. Jesus calls him out specifically for the response that he had, this response of faith. His, his answer was not, well, God did this for me, I owe him. His response is, look at what God did for me. Thank you. His response is a response of praise. So that's the attitude that gets com uh, um, commended. That's the attitude that the, Jesus looks at and says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you clean. Your faith has brought you back. You're praising God and coming to my feet and saying thank you to me. And so that's more of what I think Luke is aiming us for is this Christian response is as we respond to God, as we respond to the things that he's done for us, is not, I've got to pay him back. It is, thank you. 
It is worship. It is, oh my goodness, I can't believe what he did for me. And then if you look at this guy, he's yelling at the top of his lungs as he walks back to the village. It's telling other people, look at what God did for me. I was a leper. I was cast out. Look what he did for me. And so he actually, technically speaking, if you want to get nitpicky, the Samaritan violates the law because he wasn't allowed to go back into the, the town until he'd been pronounced clean for 10 days, until he'd done the ritual. But instead, he comes back praising God and heads right to Jesus and falls at, him, at his feet and thanks him. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you, you blew it. We had a rule. We got a, we got a rule here. Instead, he praises him. He says, look at this. You guys, would you look around and look at this foreigner? Pay attention to this man. And, and we heard this back in the book of Hebrews. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Praise is better than following all the rules. Don't ignore the rules, but don't forget praise in the midst of it. There's one other little thing that happens here um, that it's hard to get out of our English Bibles. Jesus looks at the man and he says, was there no one else except for this foreigner? That word foreigner is a hapaxilgamanon. There's your $8 seminary word of the day. Uh, what it means is it's the only time in the New Testament this word appears. And the word is actually pretty cool. I recognize it. My Greek is terrible, but I read it and I went, I know what that means. Allogenes. Allo means other. Genes is begotten. So he, what he looks at this man and he says, this allogenes, this other begotten person, is the one that's come. Now, it doesn't appear in the New Testament. You know where it does appear? In the temple. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was an outer court, a big open area called the Court of the Gentiles. The next doorway in, there was a big three-foot by two-foot sign that was engraved there. They found it. There was one in Latin and one in Greek. And what it said was it was a warning. And this, this is what it said. It said, no foreigner, no allogenes, no outsider, no other born, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. And this was one the Romans said, you can execute people for that. That was the, one of the only things the Jews were allowed to actually perform executions for, is if a Gentile wandered into the court. This was a big piece of, of sandstone etched with these words on it, and they painted it white, and they painted the letters red. It was the warning sign. It told foreigners, you are not welcome in the temple. If we catch you, we will kill you. And so Jesus picks that word, and he says, is there nobody else but this foreigner who would come and worship, who would come inside, who would dare to draw near, who would come praising God, who would fall at my feet and, and worship? It, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is saying is it, it's not a matter of, uh, nationality or, or ethnos or any of that. It's a matter of your attitude. Will you come and worship God? Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple. He said that in John chapter 2. Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. So when we come to Jesus, we are welcomed into the inner sanctuary. We are welcomed into the inner courts of the temple. We worship inside the temple when we come to Jesus. And that is the, the Christian's attitude. That's the Christian's response. When we think of what has Jesus done for me, we don't think, how do I pay him back? 
We think praise. We think worship. Now, the danger is our hearts are so bent, even after we're born again, that we can begin to drift into that I need to pay him back attitude. It's really easy. If you're not on your toes, you can start thinking, well, I don't feel like praying this morning, but I got to because, you know, Jesus saved me, so I guess I have to. And we're so sophisticated, we would never in a million years say that, right? You would never admit that. But you just need to be aware that attitude can begin to creep in. It can begin to sully your time with the Lord. So how might we guard our hearts from turning towards that works attitude, that I got to pay him back attitude? And keep it in the attitude of what we see in the Samaritan, which is live praise, starting from a position of worship. Well, the first thing I think is we have to pray. Really, even when you don't feel like praying, you can pray. And the first thing you can pray is, Lord, I really don't feel like praying. Would you lead me to pray? Because I don't want to pray right now. And he will answer that. There's a great quote I have from um, uh, John Bunyan. I almost said Paul Bunyan. <laughs> I have made that mistake before. John Bunyan, he's, he's a Puritan. He was uh, arrested and thrown in jail for illegal preaching in England. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote On Prayer. He wrote The War. He wrote some great stuff. He had a quote that really arrested me. He said, when I go to prayer, I'm loath to stay there. And, and this is a guy who is doing these wonderful, great things. He, he confessed right up front, I just don't want to pray. And so I have to fight through that. So if your heart is drifting, or to prevent your heart from drifting into that works attitude, the first thing you have to do is pray. And it may require you to pray to pray. <laughs> I have to do that sometimes. I'll sit down, I'll start praying, and the next thing you know, I'm going through my day planner. I have to stop and go, Lord, I'll pray for those things, but would you help me pray right now and, and clear my mind and let me focus on this? So we have to pray. We have to come to God with those things. That's what this man is doing. He's coming to worship. But they, they had prayed, hadn't they? Lord, have mercy on us. So start with prayer. Start with this idea of prayer. And, and when you pray, remember how Jesus taught you to pray. He said, Father. He wants you to pray to your God as Father, not as the universe. And I'm going to go shout good things into the universe, and it's going to give good things back to me. He says, I want you to come to this God and call him your father. You can come to God in prayer with an attitude of, Father, I'd like a glass of water and some string cheese, please. That's the kind of intimate relationship he wants us to have with our God in prayer. And if you think of God as your father, are you going to wind up in a, in a mechanical relationship with him where you've got to do this because he did that and he's not going to give me this because I didn't do that? You look to your father and you go, Daddy, I want some water. And it says in the Psalms that what will I do in response to everything God's done for me? I will hold up the cup of salvation. What that means is I'm going to go to God and say, give me more. Not I'm going to give you. So that's the first thing is this attitude of prayer. Go to your father who cares and pray. Lord, I'm not praying. Would you make me pray? Lord, keep me from a mechanical relationship with you. And second, remember, remember, regularly call to mind the things that you have seen God do in your lives. You can, you can count on times where you say, you know, this was going that way, and I prayed, and I asked God, and, and this happened that way, and 
yeah, it could be coincidence, but you can only take so many coincidences in your life. <laughs> this is something that God has been doing. And, and this is really the pattern. You can learn this from the book of Psalms. When you read through Psalms, watch how they remember. And in Psalm 42, verse 6, it says, My God, my soul is cast down before me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazier. My soul is cast down. Therefore, Lord, I remember you. That's how I battle a soul that's cast down, is by remembering what you've done. There are psalms where, where the psalmist recalls um, redemptive history from God delivering them from Egypt, leading them through the Red Sea, taking over the promised land, and all of those things. And the point of that is not just a history lesson. It is look at what your God has done for you over and over and over again. Remember this. Remember, this is the tool you use to fight that attitude of God as, a, as a, an impersonal force. As you remember what, how he's reacted to you, how he's acted in your life, how he loves you and has cared for you. The third thing I'd recommend is worship. Really worship. I can't remember who said it. Somebody said there's a way to do a thing, and that's to do it. So how do you worship when you're afraid that you have fallen into that, that category? You worship. That's how you worship. You go worship. It's like prayer. Lord, I don't want to pray. Make me pray. Help me pray. Worship is the same thing. You come in here in the morning, and you think, oh, I just, you know, I'm thinking about eight other things right now, and what I'm going to do after church, and what we're going to have for lunch, and how am I going to get all this together? And, and you miss the first two songs. It, it's okay. Ramey's going, no, it's not. <laughs> It's okay. You have to fight to worship. The way you learn to worship is by worshiping. So come in the door with the attitude, I am going to engage with God. I am going to, I'm going to cry out to him in this moment and, and worship with him. The other thing is worship with other people. You can do it privately. In the weekdays in the morning, sit when, you're, when you're studying the word, or you're praying, and suddenly you get this sense of God's presence, or you hear something from the Word, and you, you just are like, man, I know that's God. You can stop and praise Him and worship Him. But the way that it works in the Bible most often is we pray together. We worship together. There is a reason that a rock concert will sell out the Hollywood Bowl or the, uh, one of the stadiums down there. And it's, you could sit at home and listen to those songs, couldn't you? There's, it's not just I get to see this person live. It is the experience of all of these people coming together to enjoy this thing. We go to movies together because the movie theater's got better food and, you know, that. No, because we want to experience it together as a group. There is something dynamic about people coming together to enjoy something, and we get just a little taste of it in these crummy movies and concerts or going to an opera or something. It just because it's over, right? You know, an hour later and you're done. You may walk out whistling the main tune or something, but it's gone. When we gather together to worship, we see each other worshiping. We, we get the vibe of what's going on. We hear what God's doing on other people's lives. We get the feel for, I'm not alone in this. And that's what heaven's going to be like, right? John turned around, he heard a noise, and he turned around and he saw a multitude nobody could count. And they're all praising God. And it never ends. Revelation says in a number of places, the angels always fall down before the Lord. They're always crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It never stops in heaven. And you know what? It never gets boring. So when we enjoy a concert or an opera or a movie and we go, oh, that was fun together, imagine that times a billion. 
times in an eternity. It never diminishes. It always gets better, and it's better because we do it together. So worship, fight for worship, worship with other people. If you're not here, be somewhere. It's better to worship together and enjoy the Lord together because communally we see that he really is worth it. It's not just all in my head. Other people think that same thing. He's been doing this in those other people's lives. We can sing this song, and, and I hear a voice behind me. Somebody's really connecting with this. And that's good. So we need to fight for those kind of worship. We need to reflect on the songs that we're singing. It's okay, again, Rami's going to go, no, it's not. It's okay to stop in the middle of a song and just reflect on the words. And say, wow, that's really profound. That really, I can really connect with that. And then when you suddenly join again, now you're singing it with heartfelt praise. It's, it's coming out of who you are. Lord, that is so true, and I am so grateful for that. My shackles have been thrown into the sea. What a beautiful picture of how you've set me free. And isn't the natural reaction to that to sing? You just have to put it into, into words. You have, to, you have to put a lyric to it, a melody to it. It gets so much better when you do that. It, we're built to sing. <laughs> we're just made that way. So worship, fight for worship. And again, this is from Psalm 46, one more time. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist is not happy to sit home alone and do it. I remember this. I remember all the things you've done, and I'm going to go with the whole big group of us. We're going to march up to the temple, and we are going to worship the daylights out of God. This is going to be great. We're going to do this together. Won't that be wonderful? This is how you fight that mechanical idea, I'm going to repay God. Because when we gather together and we praise him, we see he's so much bigger than that. He's so much more than just this little God I can pay back. We remember Jesus' death, was huge. That's why I think at the beginning Luke said, this is, he's on the way to Jerusalem. You know what that means. He's going to Jerusalem for one purpose, to die. And so on his way to Jerusalem, he's calling us into praise. He's calling us into worship with him. And we do it as a group together. That's why I think it, the, the way that Luke wrote this is so poetic. What happened to the nine? The nine left. They should have been together. It should have been a communal event. They should have been worshiping God together. They were together in their separationness. In their separationness? I just made up a word. In their uncleanliness, separated from the community, they were together in that. They should be together now praising God. So they missed that. So worship. Remember, pray, worship, and then finally, Jesus. Jesus really is the answer to this. This isn't Sunday school answer. This is really the truth. The, the Samaritan praises God and falls down at Jesus' feet and thanks him. If you want to remember that you're dealing with a father who loves you, if you want to remember that you can pray to him, that you can worship him, that you can call on him, that other people do this, you have to remember how personal he is. God is a person, and person doesn't mean human being. Person means a personality, a living, actual being, someone who's alive. And that's why Jesus is so important. You can't get a fuller expression of God's love than to think the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity, God sent him into the world. 
God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him would never perish but have eternal life. Jesus comes to that, comes to us in that way because it, it is this personal relationship between us and God. So if you want to fight that mechanical attitude towards God, you remember Jesus Christ. God took on flesh. God became human being in order to draw close to you, in order to draw you close to him. That's the beauty of God's approach to this. So when we look back at this story, were you unclean? Was there a time when you were unclean in God's sight? Gosh, I was. Did, did I call out to God? Did I call out to Jesus, have mercy on me? And did he say yes? I called out. I said, I, I, this is true, Lord. What you're saying is true. You're a real person. I understand that now. And he made me clean through Jesus Christ. So don't go with the nine. Don't go into the mechanical, the, the routine. Make your first response praise and then fulfill what needs to be done. That's the relationship that God's looking for. That's that personal, intimate contact with us that God so wants out of us. And the reason I think Luke puts this right where he did and draws our attention to the fact that he's doing it in an odd way is what was last week's sermon about? It was about sin. Sin, the temptation to sin is sure to come. And the one who causes it, it'd be better if he was, he was cut off from eternity and never existed than to lead one little one into sin. Sin will come. When you're in community, when we're in this group, what happens? Your brother sins against you, and what do you got to do? You got to forgive him. He comes and says, I repent. You have to forgive him. And so now, now Luke draws this story up. And he says, this sin thing isn't just some arbitrary set of rules. It's about the relationship we have with God. And Jesus has come to set that relationship right. And the right response to what Jesus has done is praise and thanks. And, and, and that's why he pulls this, this story of the lepers in. It's unique. Luke's the only one that tells this story. So he, he puts it in where he thinks it belongs. And, and that's the Christian response. That's what we're called to do. That's how you become a better disciple, is by having the right attitude toward God, not I'm going to pay you back, not a, mechanically, mechanic, a mechanical relationship, mechanistic, that's the word I was reaching for, not a, mecha a mechanistic relationship, but a living, a vibrant relationship, one that involves worship and thanks. Let's pray. Lord, you have done amazing things. The God who never sleeps nor slumbers fell asleep in the back of a boat. The God who has the cattle on a thousand hills and has no need of food from anyone became hungry. The God who spoke the seas into existence and set their boundaries and said no further from the cross announced, I'm thirsty. Lord, you've come quite a distance to draw us near. I pray that all of us would respond the way that the Samaritan did. Lord, that we, though we are foreigners, though we are other-born, Lord, you have drawn us in, and I pray that we would go past that sign into the inner sanctuary and offer you the praise that you've called us to. And then our rituals, and then our duties, our responsibilities. But Lord, may we start with praise. 
knowing that we serve a living God so that our, our response, our, our duties, our, our relationship, or I mean our, our duties, our, our rituals, our things that we have to do don't become the boss, but they become the response to you. Lord, help us to fight against that. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. <clears throat> so how best to respond to a sermon about responding, right? <laughs> <laughs>